0: Just let me breathe for a minute. Take a deep breath with me. Let's get in it. Record highs for stocks every minute. No yields elsewhere, no matter how you spin it. But there goes consumer sentiment. Some would say this was imminent. COVID spreading and prices are sky high. Another trillion in spending. Oh my, this is getting so nerve wracking. Mixed signals make me want to start packing my portfolio up and put it all in cash. But inflation would eat away my stash. Maybe I should just chill. Get more situational awareness. Maybe I should just take my seat on the Investopedia Express. Well, welcome back and welcome aboard. Stocks are shaky to start the week, but we are coming off of more record highs for the Dow Industrials and the S&P 500. They come in bunches and they are bunching up. The Benchmark Index has made 48 new record closes so far this year, and it's made a new high every month so far in 2021. The only other year that happened, 1995. It's happening across the pond, too. The European Stock 600 has been at or near record highs for weeks. Where's the strength? Materials, financials, and industrials all hitting 21-day highs. Thank the $1 trillion infrastructure bill for that here in the U.S. It's not a law yet, but investors don't like to wait around for bills to get signed. U.S. government bond yields, meanwhile, continue to languish in low country. For the God in that's the fist jubilee singers in 1909 folks after a few weeks of slow climbing those yields sank again on friday after consumer sentiment dropped to its lowest levels since 2011 the month over month drop was the largest in history the two other drops near this magnitude april of 2020 as the pandemic took hold and march of 2008 right in the teeth of the great financial crisis what's bugging consumers Well, it's the rampant spread of the Delta variant, inflation, and way too much government spending. We have all three, and they're bringing a wave of anxiety with them. It's getting to our readers, too. According to Investopedia's most recent survey of our 1.5 million newsletter readers, government spending is the biggest threat to the stock market, you say. Most of our readers think the stock market is overvalued, but that's not stopping them from staying invested and staying consistent. But very few intend to invest more than their usual amounts going into the end of the year, and less of our readers expect robust gains to finish out 2021. Higher prices are being driven by intense demand, and more supply chain disruptions around the world are impacting everything from semiconductor production to the delivery of raw goods. The global supply chain was dealt another blow as China's largest port, the Ningbo Zhoushan on the eastern coast of the country, was partially shut down last week due to a new COVID-19 outbreak. That's having a compounding impact on major ports throughout Asia and around the world. That's leading to more delays and higher prices for imports. The planet's waterways are really congested right now. Well, how about our airspace? They're not here yet, but air taxis are coming and they are already taking to the public markets. Last week, California-based Joby Aviation completed its merger with a SPAC, one of those special-purpose acquisition companies. Shares pop 40% and more air taxis are on the SPAC launch pad. EV toll companies, also known as electric vertical takeoff and landing vehicles, including Archer Aviation, Vertical Aerospace, and Lilium Air Mobility, are scheduled to close similar deals soon. Others may be waiting in the wings, such as Swiss startup Dufour Aerospace, which is putting a special focus on air ambulances. But SPACs have lost their shine in 2021, and so have IPOs. The SPAC ETF SPAK is down 19% year-to-date, and the Renaissance IPO ETF is flat for the year, while the SPY, the SPY, the S&P 500 ETF is up 18%. It's been a smooth ride for index investors so far, but investor anxiety is is growing. Let's get set up for the week ahead. The earnings parade is winding down, but not before we hear from major retailers and chip makers this week. Home Depot, Target, and Walmart will all report quarterly results, and they'll give us a better picture of the waxing and waning of consumer confidence and spending during the second quarter. All three benefited during the lockdowns of 2020, and they should have seen that momentum continue last quarter as the economy was opening up and consumers were still feeling flush. Their outlooks for the current quarter and the rest of the year, though, will be critical. We'll also get Robinhood's first quarterly report as a public company. We know account growth and trading activity have slowed in the past eight months, and they are core to Robinhood's business, especially crypto and options trading. But investors and traders have taken a liking to Robinhood stock since the IPO a few weeks ago. Shares are up 45% since Robinhood markets went public on July 29th. If you truly believe in your hearts that you are free, then I say we can win. Sorry, having a Kevin Costner moment. He's a better bodyguard than a Robin Hood, though. Chipmakers are proving how critical they are to the global economy, given the intense shortages that are plaguing industries from video game makers to automakers. Delays for semiconductors for automobiles now stretch to 26 and a half weeks, which is costing the auto industry more than $100 billion so far. In just the past two weeks, Ford delayed production for its Mach-E electric vehicle. Nissan halted production in one of its major plants in Tennessee, and Volvo shut down its plant in Torslanda, Sweden. This week, we'll get results from widely held semiconductor makers, including NVIDIA, which supplies chips for everything from phones to video game consoles and memory cards for mining cryptocurrencies. Shares of NVIDIA are up 54% year-to-date. Applied materials will also report quarterly results, and the company, which makes semiconductor equipment, has also been benefiting from intense demand. Shares of AMAT are up 50% so far in 2021. On the economic front, retail spending figures from July will be released on Wednesday, and investors will want to pay attention to any softness in the market given inflation and fears of the renewed spread of COVID-19. Industrial production and manufacturing activity reports for July will also be released on Tuesday, and they'll paint a clearer picture of the impact of supply chain disruptions around the world and the higher prices for raw materials. We'll also get the FOMC minutes from the Fed's last meeting on interest rates on Wednesday. We know there are differences of opinion inside the central bank as to when it should pull back or taper its $120 billion in monthly bond purchases. The minutes will provide more detail on how hot those arguments have become. Are we going to see a showdown at the Jackson Hole Corral at the end of August? That's when Fed governors and global economists gather in the mountains of Wyoming for a two-day symposium full of Keynesian economics, hiking, and fly fishing. But it's getting a little testy inside the FOMC, and Fed Chair Powell's term expires in February. This could get dangerous. Sudden Wealth Syndrome. It's a problem many of us think we wish we had to suddenly come into millions of dollars that can alter the course of our lives and our financial futures. It actually happens to some people, and it's not that infrequent. Professional athletes, celebrities, influencers, beneficiaries of an estate, recipients of lucrative stock options or awards when your company goes public, it happens. But what we do when that happens matters a lot. Joe McLean is a managing partner of Intersect Capital, a wealth management business that helps professional athletes and high net worth individuals and families manage their money and take control of their financial lives before their money takes control of them. He's also on Investopedia's list of the most influential financial advisors in 2021, and he's our special guest this week on The Express. Welcome, Joe. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. I love one of the quotes you have on your website. We believe you are the CEO of your own wealth. What does that mean in practical terms for your clients, Joe?
1: You know, I think in practical terms it's for many people coming into to money for the very first time, they don't realize that they control most of the outcomes, you know, in the future. You may not be able to control the markets, but you can you can control your behavior, you can control how you spend, you can measure who, what your next milestone will be, and it's just important to remind people that they sit at the top where, you know, an industry was really was built to to go out and try to monetize and and commission business to clients, they should have the power. They should have the control.
0: And so many people feel like they should cede the control to the experts. But especially today, as we've seen with athletes, with influencers, with celebrities, they want to be just much more than what that career defines them as. They want to be entrepreneurs. They want to be investors. They want to start their own businesses. So they want a lot more than they used to. Let's talk about some of your celebrity athlete clients who through their talents and representation land these enormous multi-million dollar year contracts. Clay Thompson, he's the shooting guard for the Golden State Warriors. He's on your roster. He signed a five-year $190 million contract with the Warriors a couple of years ago that pays him up to $43 million a year in his final year of the deal. How do you counsel? Clay, who's notorious for being careful with his money.
1: He's honestly one of the easy ones because nothing has really changed in his life personally, uh, even though the wealth has dramatically changed. You know, I would say the most difficult part of this with anybody is, especially when you look at athletes, you know, much like to myself, I had Michael Jordan and Larry Bird posters on my walls, right? I didn't have NBA paychecks. That was never part of the dream. And quite often what happens is you fulfill your dream for some of these very uniquely successful people, and then the money is attached to it, and that becomes, you know, something that really they had never considered before. So, really, it's sitting down, being just as competitive as you were to be successful in whatever respected sport, clay as an example, and up- apply the exact same discipline back to the fundamentals of how you got to be successful. We do the same thing when it comes to their money. And I think it's important to do it very, very early on. There's an old saying that we use that if you don't choose the percentage of income that you want to live off of, your lifestyle will quickly choose it for you. And so much to the control parameters that I mentioned at the beginning, that's really something we talk about at a very early stage even prior to the wealth coming.
0: When you're looking at some of these numbers, a $34 million a year deal in the first or second years of his deal, that's a big paycheck every week, every two weeks. But do you really break it down into those components of, this is what we're saving. This is taxes. This is investing. This is charity. Do you break it up into those jars? Is it that minute or is it kind of bigger picture?
1: It's both, but you have to get very, very granular because I think the one thing you can't do is take the money do some traditional financial planning, you know, and add a Monte Carlo analysis and say, if you save this, look at what you'll have when you're 70, right? Because the numbers are ridiculous. And the reality is your life will change over time. So we try to put the financial scoreboard up and get very, very granular. You know, as you mentioned, taxes, as as an example, that's one of the first things anybody learns very early on. I actually had an athlete who who asked me, why do they call it a tax return? They, They never return anything to me. So it's going through the basics, but we emphasize three buckets that everybody should think about as you're putting a plan together. One is, you know, looking at that contract as an example and look at what your burn rate is, what we call like, what does it cost to be you? What is that number? You know, and everyone listening, I always remind everyone like, do you know what it costs to be you? And then ask the next question, how do you make it cost less to be you? You got to apply the same discipline, even though you have an abundance of something. So We've got to fill that safety and security bucket. I, I, I'm not a big fan of debt unless you've proven that you can use debt effectively, but we always have enough money in that safety and security bucket to fill that. What does it cost to be you? And That's when people start understanding the second bucket, which is the growth bucket, where we move from somebody that's earning a lot of money to now how do you create other types of passive income streams and or ordinary income? Because most of us live off of 12 to 24 paychecks for the majority of our career. Well, at a young age, if you come into a lot of wealth, those types of paychecks go away, right, in your 30s. So how do you create another bucket that's going to give you paychecks, quite frankly? And that's when we start talking about, well, for most, if you've never had money before, how do you get money to to start growing when you're not working? And so it's just simply filling that bucket, but looking at, okay, if we save 75 cents of every dollar, this is exactly how we're going to fill the safety and security bucket. The next bucket is this growth bucket. And for very young investors, I typically never allow more than 15% of their money to be illiquid. That was one of the first things I saw early on seven to nine years ago, researching athletes as an example, why they weren't successful is highly illiquid, never really knew exactly what the deal was they were invested nor what, what the value was. So if I can put them in a position where they have the ability to get their money back in four days and be liquid early on, then that's something where over time, as they become better savers, that could become more illiquid so that they can fill the last bucket, which I call the dream bucket or the entrepreneurial bucket. That could be the second home that you shouldn't have, but you can buy. Could be a crazy car that you shouldn't have, but you can buy. I actually categorize more venture, private equity, early stage investing into that bucket. And when I paint that picture for everybody, and you look at the safety and security to the growth, to the dream bucket, which bucket do you think most of us want to fill first? The dream bucket. The dream bucket, right? <laughs> and it's reminding everyone, quite often, you're already living your existing dream, and you've got to fulfill that, right? And so if we can get really hyper-organized and fill the first two, and that third bucket doesn't work, then we're still Okay that's a plan that, that most can digest because you know you've already taken the discipline to fill the other two.
0: Uh, I love that. And you know those fundamentals, just like basketball fundamentals, they're good for whether you're earning 50 grand or 50 million, you really got to break it up like that. And I love that. How much does it cost to be you? I'm going to do that as an exercise with our readers because I don't think a lot of people know that. It's not just knowing your net worth. It, what does it actually cost to be you or to be the you you want to be in a few years? Let's take a different case. And maybe it's the same example. Let's say I'm a developer, a young executive, and a hotshot tech firm. It goes public. I see a windfall of $10 million. Is that approach that I should take the same as a Clay Thompson or as a as a celebrity who all of a sudden comes into a lot of money?
1: It is. And I think it's, you know, part of my job is not to try to scare people, right? It, it, it's to say, hey, if you don't take these next steps to get organized, you're going to go broke because I found most don't respond to that. It's adding a higher level of respect. So, you know, an executive example, one is reminding them, okay, what made you very successful in this outcome may not in the characteristics that you had and the drive that you had and the willing to bet on yourself at all costs to be successful. Those don't always translate to becoming a great investor. You don't need, now that you have wealth, you don't need to bet on yourself and go out and try to hit another home run. Now, if we fulfill those buckets, then you could swing for the fences if you've done it. But that's the one common denominator I see in athletes or entrepreneurs is this willing to bet on yourself at all costs and reminding everyone that that may not be the same characteristics you want as an investor.
0: You mentioned some of the mistakes we make, but are there other common mistakes that sudden millionaires make with their money when they get it for the first time? What do you see when you, when you come across some of your clients or some of the people out there?
1: You lose discipline. I would say with, with great abundance typically comes less discipline. You know, when you could swipe your card. And American Express never calls you and says, don't spend as much money as you spent this month, as long as you're paying the bills, right? That's not their job. Right. So it's most of us lose discipline. I had an old uh, teammate of mine at University of Arizona who was describing to me what happened to him when he came into a lot of wealth. And he was actually someone that, that would beat me to the gym before practice and he would stay longer. And he signed a hundred plus million dollar contract. And he said, Joe, I, I was having out of a lot of experiences Watching myself hit the snooze button, literally no longer working as hard as I was before that made me successful because the money was so great. And so you need personal drive as you do come into some success to really change the rules of of what the new milestone is. Otherwise, you hit the snooze button and you stop engaging happens all the time.
0: You can see how people could get soft in that type of an environment. It's human nature. Let's switch gears here a little bit. Talk about the recent Supreme Court ruling back in June that said that in effect, the NCAA has been operating a system that is a classic restraint of competition a system that violates the nation's antitrust laws by not allowing student-athletes to get paid. That's a game changer for college athletics, for students, for the NCAA, for sponsors. Put the ruling into context for us. You were a college basketball player. Obviously, this didn't happen when you were there. But what does this mean right now for for college athletics and the NCAA?
1: Well, it's back to control, right? They're becoming the CEO again of their their college experience. I'll be honest with you. I go both ways on this. I was a student-athlete. I was the benefactor of a four-year college degree. I went and played in Europe and then eventually came back and went back to grad school. And my college coach got my graduate school paid for. And so I utilized as much as I possibly could. But at the same time, I was also, this was mid-90s, watching many of my teammates on the 12th day of the month swipe their card to get food at the student union. And it was empty and had to wait weeks before they can get that thing filled again. I had a mom and dad that could fill the card. And so we were fourteen to sixteen thousand people in every arena we played, and they didn't have enough under student union card to eat. It's crazy, let alone us in the, during the summer, you know, wanting to get an extra job, you know, while we were going to summer school, and you couldn't do it. Right. So there are great opportunities now, I think, with this ruling, for many many people to just have opportunities that didn't exist before. I think you know there's going to be a large inflow of people maybe trying to manipulate the student athlete and monetize them even earlier. So with that, I think I mean, the majority of the schools have to really dive in and teach classes that never t- they taught before, right? Whether it's how do you negotiate a deal or what's your intellectual property all about or how do you have this growth mindset, financial literacy. Honestly, these are all things that should have been taught to us decades ago. In grade school. Right, right. And finally, they're going to start talking about that, which is, which is great. At the same time, I think it's just important, again, back to the dream comment, is to focus on the dream at hand and not have two different dreams going on at the same time when you're at school. So I think it's a great thing. I just think time will tell the best way to fulfill this within the universities.
0: Sure, early days, but we know the money's already starting to come in and we see some student-athletes positioning themselves to make a lot of money. Let's translate this into what it could mean for a celebrity student-athlete who suddenly can cash in on their likeness, sell merchandise, sell non-fungible tokens of themselves, become a spokesperson for brands. Take a Sedona Price from the University of Oregon's women's basketball team. She's got two and a half million followers on TikTok, 240,000 Instagram followers, that's a built-in customer base. She's ready to start selling merchandise or whatever she can to them. How would you counsel someone like Sedona who's suddenly facing this opportunity?
1: Well, one, I would trademark everything they're doing. You have to have that ownership mentality. Greg Norman once said, don't be a pass-through entity. He used to sign a bunch of endorsement deals, had an LLC, they'd pay him. And then if he didn't perform, they no longer paid him. Eventually, he owned everything he did, whether it was his shark brand or his wine or his the golf courses he designs, he literally owns the type of grassy career that goes on the golf courses. So I would advise her to immediately, you know, trademark everything she's doing so that she has ownership. Because I found, as an example, maybe she wants to start a clothing line and sell to her audience. I was sitting with some college student athletes about this, and and one said, "Well, I just started a clothing line, and they pay me six dollars for every shirt." I said, "Okay, well, how much is the shirt? Forty dollars." I said, "Okay, so how much does it cost to make the shirt?" Uh, didn't really have the answer. I, I know what, how much it costs to make the shirt. How, how much does it cost to, to distribute it? I know how much of that cost. Right. So long story short, that person was probably earning 15% of the total profits. And, and so it's starting to think about, do you want to monetize your audience? If so, is that the right way to look at it? Because you may lose your audience if you're just trying to make money off of them. Or do you want to tell a story and just bring people into your, in, into your life as to what you're trying to accomplish and how you can make a difference? So I think if you're trying to serve the audience, Versus monetize them. That would be the best advice I could give them. But every single step along the way, make sure you're owning everything you do and you got to pay a sweat the details. I would hire somebody else to also help you pay attention.
0: That's where you start to have to build those foundations around you where all of a sudden that money sounds like a lot of money, but you do have, need that lawyer for the trademark. You do need that financial advisor. For the advice you need people running your small businesses to ship them the t-shirts or whatever you have so that could get expensive real fast what do you think the supreme court's ruling ultimately means for the future of college sports which is a huge money maker as we know especially for the bigger d1 universities in the big popular sports like a football and basketball what do you think it's going to translate to ultimately
1: it's a crystal ball approach but i would i envision you know the ncaa really focusing on the march madness tournament as their number one moneymaker, I would envision the overall, the leagues, you know, the SEC, the ACC, the Pac-12, those probably growing to get even larger and larger and running their separate entity outside of the NCAA. And then they go in and participate in these large playoff situations and get a, a piece of the pie. I think that's the only way the NCAA really survives in this. You already see in basketball as an example, companies like Overtime, Elite, going out and attracting the top 20, 30 players in the world, putting them through the exact same name, image, and likeness programs that colleges are doing and, and paying them. Right or wrong, well, we'll see how that works out. But the NBA is going to continue to compete against the NCAA. So I think future's uncertain It's to be written. It's going to look a lot different in the years to come. And, and I think the only way they're going to be able to monetize is controlling some of the television Rights around the tournament, which is typically their biggest moneymaker anyways.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and they do have those ten pole franchises in almost every big sport, whether it's the Final Four, the Super Bowl, the playoffs, now the drafts, and everything else. You played pro ball in Europe, as you mentioned, after helping lead the Wildcats to the Final Four. What led you ultimately to wealth management?
1: I had a lot of humility because I was cut eleven times in four years in Europe and chasing the dream. I when I left in '99. I went back to grad school and knew I had to start working. My only financial investment experience was making some money in Europe, and I gave it to a Merrill Lynch broker. And in 98, 99, I would put it in a tech mutual fund worth $10, and all of a sudden, it was worth $110. I was like, well, this is really easy. And then not until I got into the financial industry, I actually was interviewing in the tech world. Everybody, all my buddies and and gals were working for anything that was dot-com. And I would do interviews, and I'd show up in a suit. And the person interviewing me had t-shirt and flip-flops and shorts on. And you know, that's fine. But for me, I knew I needed, I needed another coach in life. I needed structure. And when I interviewed at the financial service companies, everybody was had that more coaching mentality. Uh, they were a little bit more buttoned up uh, and had a lot more discipline. And I had an old boss uh, named Jim Escobedo in the interview said, listen, you don't know nothing about nothing. And the sooner you learn that the sooner you'll be curious to start learning something. And that really struck me. It was like, okay, they were intellectually challenging me to go out and seek information. And that this felt good. It felt like the right situation, you know, and especially in sports. The things you miss in transition from leaving sports is not the games. It's not the fans. It's the bus rides. It's the locker room. It's a sense of accountability and a schedule and striving for the next goal. And that the second you stop playing is gone. It goes away. So uh, even back to what we were just talking about with this NCAA ruling, this is a chance actually to build your locker room and your bus outside of sports, as an example, day one. So how do you build a trusted locker room of people that are credible and that really have a lower self-orientation built around just serving somebody else so you feel like that's someone you want on your bus? So these are all exciting things to think about. And I was a benefactor just having really good coaches in the financial industry to help me kind of prepare for where I am today.
0: Well, it's great. And also, we always say that learning about investing, learning about managing your financial life, that's a lifelong journey. That's not something you learn in a week or learn in five years. You get better at it over time, but it's a lifelong journey. And it seems like you've been putting that to heart and also putting it into your business. Joe McClain, uh, from Intersect Capital. So good to have you on The Express. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. It's terminology time, time for the educated investor to smarten up with the investing term we need to know this week. This week's term comes to us from Jordan in Denver, Colorado. What's up, Mile High? Jordan suggests OPEC Plus, and we like that suggestion given what's been happening in the oil markets lately. OPEC Plus, according to Investopedia, is a group of 24 oil producing nations made up of the 14 members of OPEC and the 10 other non-OPEC members that include Russia, Azerbaijan, Bahrain, Brunei, Kazakhstan, Malaysia, Mexico, Oman, South Sudan, and Sudan. The OPEC bloc is normally led by Saudi Arabia, the group's largest oil producer, while Russia is the biggest player among the non-OPEC countries. OPEC Plus controls over 50% of global oil supplies and about 90% of proven oil reserves. That's a pretty dominant position, and it ensures that the coalition, or cartel as some folks call it, has a significant influence on the price of oil, at least in the short term. Why is OPEC plus bubbling up in the news lately? Well, last Wednesday, President Biden's administration urged OPEC plus to boost output to tackle rising gasoline prices that they see as a threat to the global economic recovery. Quick refresh here, oil and gas prices plummeted in April of 2020 as the pandemic really set in, with oil futures actually going negative at one point. OPEC plus slashed production in 2020 by nearly 10 million barrels per day to boost prices. Since then, crude oil prices surged 230% from their lows, and they've been trading in the $65 to $75 range for the past several months. Those are highs we haven't seen since 2019. OPEC Plus has been gradually increasing production, but not fast enough for one of its two biggest customers, the USA. China is the other one, and in case you're wondering, neither China nor the US is a member of OPEC Plus. OPEC Plus is slowly bringing more production back online, but the cartel has leveraged for the first time in a long time. Keep an eye on this development. Good suggestion, Jordan. You'll be getting styled with a pair of Investopedia socks for those cool Rocky Mountain nights. We're going to let President Jimmy Carter take us out again. Here's the president in March of 1977 talking about the energy crisis facing America. Oil prices had spiked amid tensions with Iran. The U.S. was not a net producer of oil like it is now and it was relying on OPEC for 75% of its supplies. Unless profound changes are made to lower oil consumption, we now believe that early in the 1980s, the world will be demanding more oil than it can produce. The world now uses about 60 million barrels of oil a day, and demand increases each year about 5 percent. This means that just to stay even, we need the production of a new Texas every year, an Alaskan North Slope every nine months, or a new Saudi Arabia every three years. Obviously, this cannot continue. Guess what? It did continue, but it wasn't that extreme. The U.S. shifted its energy to use more coal, solar power, natural gas, nuclear power, and wind, and it began pumping more oil out of the ground and out of the sea in the Gulf of Mexico and along Alaska's shores. In 2020, the United States consumed an average of about 18.12 million barrels of petroleum per day, or a total of about 6.63 billion barrels of petroleum every year. This was the lowest level, believe it or not, of annual consumption since 1995. And we became a net exporter of oil back in 2011, but we still buy and use a lot of it. And consumers feel those prices at the pump every day. Let's keep our confidence this week. And remember what Joe McLean said, let's be the CEOs of our own wealth. We drive this train and we'll talk again a little further on down the line.